HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. So this is our third episode, and we're obviously super excited about it, but this is the first time that we've ever been recording the intro to the show, like not physically in the same room, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm in San Francisco. Yeah, you could almost say that we're on tour. I'm definitely on tour. So I'm in San Francisco. You're in Michigan. I'm here taking a bread class, a baking class, and... I'm staying with a friend, and actually, yesterday, he baked seaweed bread. So there's this delicious uh, seaweed and sesame seed bread um, that he baked super fresh. So the aroma of seaweed is in the air at the moment. Still. Right now, where I'm recording. And our show today is all about seaweed, too. Located on the pristine coastline of the Wild Atlantic Way at Derrynane on the Ring of Kerry, Husband and wife John and Carrie Ann Fitzgerald have been running seaweed discovery courses and workshops since 2009. So the first time that we met with John and Carrie Ann when we went for the seaweed discovery walk, we drove from West Cork to Carrie. It was a really a gorgeous drive. It's incredible, um, pretty remote part of Ireland. 
We met John in a parking lot at a little market, and then we drove right to the beach where we were going for our, our seaweed walk. We had our son, who I believe was four at the time, and John had with him seaweed cookies and some kind of warm seaweed tea or soup. Mm-hmm. It was tea. Um, yeah. So that was amazing because it was a little bit of a chilly morning. It was in November. And and then, um, yeah, and then we went and we walked in the waves for a little while. So we went there and had a seaweed, what did you call it? Excursion? Discovery course. We had like a mini seaweed discovery course, and it was, like you were just saying, like a truly special and remarkable experience. We walked along the seashore at low tide, and um, John took us around and pointed out like all the different seaweed that grew, uh, tons of historical facts, tons of scientific facts, and um, it was a blast. We all had a blast. For Bog and Thunder, John and Carrie Ann of Atlantic Irish Seaweed were amongst the first people that we met. And I actually remember, you know, we went seaweed foraging and then we went back to their house and Carrie Ann had created this really amazing platter of food for us to try, including this adorable panda-shaped rice ball for aloe. Um, But when we were leaving their house and we were driving away and we were going back to the place we were staying in West Cork, I remember feeling just really great. It really felt like it was a really good idea that we were starting Like for Bog and Thunder. Yeah. For Bog and Thunder. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think made you feel that way? Um, And there was just something about about the experience with John, how knowledgeable and passionate he is about his craft, and also how warm and welcoming he and Carrie Ann were. Because, yeah. you know, initially we were just a couple of strange Americans who called them on the phone and asked them, you know, if we could do this seaweed experience, you know, and it felt like we were friends just a few hours later when we left their house. One of the things that I really liked about, um, about, the seaweed workshop that we did with John and about the interview that we had is how much the history becomes present in, in his work through seaweed. Um, it basically, you know, and he'll talk about it, but starting out in, you know, thousands of years ago when seaweed was a means of sustenance for people and it was provided vitamin C all the way through today where, you know, we have a totally different relationship with seaweed um, and then everything in between. And I just love how um, through this, you know, one particular vegetable, you can talk about the history and is it a vegetable? Is that why you're laughing? It's not really a vegetable. No. <laughs> it's a plant. I don't know. It's a vegetable, right? No. Is it a vegetable? Now I'm like, well, now I'm doubt- you have me doubting yes. myself. Yeah, it's a sea vegetable. Why not? Yeah. Through this vegetable of the sea. It really lets you get at a ton of stuff. Um, well, you know, it was a primary source of sustenance for people um, I just in said coastal that, regions. And I'm saying it better, but it was a primary, <laughs> you know. No, I mean, John talks about how seaweed was a primary source of sustenance for a long time. And then it went out of fashion and has recently been coming back. And I think you know, you'll see it on a lot of chef-driven restaurant menus. Um, you know what you know, I picture when people say Ireland? chef-driven restaurant menus now is like 
a chef like, a like driving truck? the restaurant around? <laughs> yeah, like a food truck or like. Not necessarily a bad idea. <laughs> the, chef, the chef is literally driving a restaurant around. There's like a little <laughs> tiny car like that up front up? that's like. Yeah, and it's going really slow. Yeah. You should have a food truck and you should call it Chef Driven Restaurant. <laughs> Literally anything can happen. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. And without any further ado, here's our interview with John Fitzgerald of Atlantic Irish Seaweed. Can you talk a little bit about what an Irish seaweed experience is like? Um, like what's important to you to include in that experience? and what do you think most people get out of it? I guess to go through the history of seaweed use uh, is very important. Going going way, way back, one of the things we we get to see on our um, guided foreshore walk is is a, a shell midden, which um, could date back up to the last ice age, um, which was proof of the early settlers in Ireland who came um, some ten, eleven thousand years ago, after the last ice age, and they all settled at the co- around the coast, because the country was covered in forest, um, and the coast provided you'd shelter in the sand dunes, you'd um access to food, um, three hundred sixty five days of the year in the form primarily of of seaweed and fish, um, mostly shellfish, so. I guess the paleo diet. Uh, this is what these folks ate every day, but it was um, it was the a primary dietary source for the original settlers, not just in Ireland, but uh, um, in North America there and South America. Um, on both coasts, they have what were known as the kelp highways, whereby the original settlers followed a coastal route down the west, the western. Um, side of North America and the eastern side of North America uh, again um, with similar diets of, of fish, shellfish and seaweed the, the modern paleo diet um, so the, the history is very important going right through um, more modern times where you'd have stuff like uh, um, its use in gunpowder and explosives its use in iodine the the pharmaceutical and nutraceutical uses the various health benefits i guess one of the one of the main um histories around around here would be if we take skellig michael which we're lucky enough to live nearby which is the iconic monk settlement it, it was an island some 12 kilometers offshore that the monks lived on from the 6th to the 12th century and seaweed formed a, a vital part of their daily diet it it was what provided them with minerals, trace elements, omega three, omega six, but particularly vitamin C, and that's like something I like to share with the visitors as well, just so that they can think about what it must have been like, um, in the sixth century. So Skellig Michael is the, is 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 on the western periphery of Ireland, and it was actually the edge of the known world because the world was considered flat at the time. So if you went past Skellig Michael, you went down into the abyss. There was no, very, very little grew. The word Skellig translates from the Irish, it means shard or jagged rock. So their diet was really poor. The monks that lived out there in, essentially in hermitage. And uh, as a source of vitamin C to prevent scurvy, seaweed was really, really important. 
especially one particular type, Dillisker dulse, um, which is quite common on the eastern seaboard there in North America. It grows the Bay of Fundy in Canada all the way down to New England. Um, that was a fantastic source of vitamin C. And that's what helped those monks survive out there for all those um, hundreds of years. And it was also carried on every voyage by the Norse Vikings who started to raid Ireland in the early 800s. The ancient monks living on all the, the remote outposts like the islands and the, the Viking raiders who opened up all the trade routes between the Mediterranean and the rest of Europe um, and Ireland. These guys, um, seaweed played a huge part in the history of allowing that to happen. So I like to, to share all that with people. Um, and they get to taste some of these seaweeds as we're talking about them. So they, they can uh, go back and forth in time, if you like. So um, the experience, I kind of try and cater going way back right through the the Irish famine years and, and right up to modern times um, and try and take dip in and out and, and give people uh, an idea that this stuff wasn't just uh, um, funny looking stuff that you avoid when you're going in and out of the water for a swim. So on that note, I'm wondering, um, was there a time in history in which Irish people started to move away from eating seaweed as a regular part of their diet? Or do you think that generally speaking in the coastal areas like where you live, it's it's always been something that people have eaten? That's a great question, um, Kate, and it's very, very relevant. And I believe that um, two things would have happened. Agriculture, as we know it now, modern agriculture kind of came here and and swept across Europe and this this moved people away more away from foraging um but but also after colonization starting with the um, plantation of Munster in the 1500s by the Elizabethans we we became monocrop dependent basically um the potato was introduced in the 1600s um and we became dependent on that as our main um, staple, if you like. So far, foraging, roaming, um, land ownership became a big thing. As as we know, the, the lands were confiscated by the Cromwellian forces um, and then divided up by Cromwell amongst his, his men. The, the so-called peasants would have had tiny, only a tiny amount of land to survive on and potatoes made the most sense as a staple crop to try and feed their 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 families. Um it's not that long ago, the eighteen forties, but it's it's hard to believe it. In rural Ireland, one in one out of two um of the people in rural Ireland lived in in one room mud mud huts, basically with no chimney, fire a fire lighting if they're lucky, the door open to let the smoke out. They would have become monocrop dependent on that potato crop when that failed they they would have lost the the knowledge if you like of of harvesting the shore um, and i guess it's the same with all colonization you take power away from the people by making them dependent on single crops or very few crops and um, which then you can assert control over to a certain extent they fared better in a lot of the coastal communities um but when the potatoes the when the crop was deemed a failure it happens so quickly that it's very easy for us we have this famous saying you guys have it in the states that your 
whatever, one paycheck, two paychecks away from the street. These people were literally hours away. So if you think of it back then, um, you couldn't get into your um, Lexus and pop down to the shore and collect whatever seaweeds you could find and bring them back and either stick them in your your deep freezer or your your nice shed because you didn't have any of that sort of stuff. You basically had a, a, a tiny hut full of children who are now already sick. and uh, uh, Obviously, pre-contraception families were huge. The, 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 I think the average family was like nine that survived childbirth. So you basically, had, you went immediately into crisis mode. And during the famine, the 1840s and 50s, those famine years, the, the landlords had already decided to clear the lands um, because it made more sense financially for them to have sheep on the land than, than peasants. They no longer needed um, the labor force of the peasants in, in vast numbers. Uh, so they were happy to get rid of them um, anyway, anyway necessary. So it's ironic to think that Ireland was exporting food all through the famine years. Do you see the um, resurgence in interest in seaweed um, as food as a response to those years in any way in Ireland? No, no, no. It took a long time to come back through. In fact, the, almost the opposite. There, there would be, there would have been um, a sort of a, a peasant snobbery. We'd call it that. That if you if you ate stuff like that from the shore, it was peasant food. Um, you know, and at a sign of poverty. Whereas if you were socially mobile, you bought your um, you might buy blueberries in the supermarket from Peru, but you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't. Pick the the blackberries, far more nutritious that were growing on the bushes outside your garden, outside your 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 door. So uh, there was actually a backlash from the famine in in to a certain respect. But nowadays, between say Nordic chefs, uh, the the kind of globalization in a way, the world's gotten smaller. So we our diets have expanded like. You know, 15 years ago in Ireland, uh, nobody knew what the word sushi was. Now, now there'd be loads of restaurants around. Do you know? It's a uh, so so seaweed is 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 become has become trendy and mainstream, if you like. And you're actually working with some of those uh, higher end restaurants with some of your products, right? Can you talk up a little bit about? Your relationship with them and some of the stuff you're making. We're just about to get over the line with the an amazing restaurant in Norway. It's a Michelin starred restaurant that's called Under U N D E R, and uh, this restaurant is actually under the ocean. So uh, we can't wait to visit. But they've wow. commissioned wow. us <laughs> to supply. Yeah, it's, it's so you you literally you get to eat with the fishes. So um, these guys have commissioned us to make uh, a bunch of pieces for their dining room um, and we're working on that at the moment. The order keeps getting more diverse and bigger, which is a good complaint. Um, they want uh, knives, forks and spoons, but now I think they want cheese grater type things and... And steak knives as well, which they're having made in Norway, and we're putting handles on them over here. So it's a kind of a collaboration, but that's an exciting one. Um, so yeah, we're we're we 
Our forest kelp is called Laminaria hyperborea, and it's got thick stalks or stipes that'll be akin to a broom handle. And when these wash up after the southerly gales, the storms, if you like, we'd, um, we'd harvest some of these from the shores. Um, we just had three of these storms back to back, thanks to you guys. You sent them over when you were done with them. <laughs> always appreciate that, looking out for us. But um, these, no problem. <laughs> these these wash up these um, stalks, so they're storm cast, if you like. And uh, we start an elaborate process then whereby we can um, stabilize and cure them. The process takes about six to eight weeks from we what we call from storm to table. And in the end, what you're left with is um, you're left with what essentially looks, people think it's like deer horn. It's um, like deer antler or something like that. So it makes gorgeous uh, cutlery handles. Our main tours would be through the summer months, say, say from March through to October. So the season is, isn't, it's not just the, the three months of the summer holidays, if you like. It goes right through, which is wonderful. But, um, and we still get some right through the winter. But uh, when oddballs like you guys show up, but... Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, but but uh, and a lot of chefs because that's the time they might have off would be February or something before the season kicks in. I love that that uh, that phrase "storm to table." I think that's really cool. It's good, isn't it? You mentioned working with chefs, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the like other culinary uses of seaweed. Um, you know, I know when we visited your house, we had. Some dishes that were, you know, more Asian inspired, but there was also um, a dish that you served us that used um, seaweed instead of pasta. And it had, a, I think, a Parmesan and butter sauce or something like that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, sea spaghetti, which is, that'd be the kids' favorite and one of, one of my favorites also. It's, it's, it's actually one of the kelps. It's a brown seaweed called sea spaghetti. Himantalia elongata, and it behaves very much like the name suggests, like pasta. Um, you you boil it for five minutes, then you rinse it under cold tap, and then you flavor it. So was lots of fresh parmesan, nice olive oil, and um, I think it was basil. Uh, so yeah, that that that's a uh, that can be. You can add shellfish to that also. It's uh, it's it's. Nice with mussels or cockles or something like that, but um, the 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 French call that a uh, haricot de la mer, the green bean of the ocean, and they'd eat a lot of it. It's really a, they'd eat a lot of it as a, a sea vegetable. You'd you'd eat a vegetable sized portion of it if you like, whereas some of the other ones would be you'd use in cooking to enhance flavors. The the kelp blades would be used. Uh, they're quite literally the Asian stock cube. So if we take the blades of the, the Laminaria digitata, which are the Laminaria hyperborea, the one we make the handles, cutlery handles from, the blades of that, if you take a six-inch piece of blade or leaf, if you like, and use that instead of a, a stock cube, and what happens is it, it, it releases natural glutamates into the dish as you cook it. So it forms the basis of, a, it's, it's what they use to make dashi to make their um, miso soup. Um, so if you if you use that, we'd use it in every soup and stew and casserole. Um, spaghetti parmesan, you throw a leaf of this in, 
while it's but while your sauce is bubbling away there for two three hours and it just changes it enhances the dish. It was it, it was from that kelp that uh, umami that fifth taste sensation of savoriness was first isolated. California actually in the early eighties, um, that fifth taste sensation. So adding that it's it, in 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 Japan like chefs would would pick a certain um, district and then they'd have various years. So they'd be like the French or the Californians with wine. Oh, my one came from that area and it's minus two, 2019 and yours is 2018 and came from a different district and there'll be different uh, stuff going on with the kelps. So they they take it really, really seriously. Only in the West where we think we're smarter, do we go into the cupboard and take out a little... Um, aluminum foil cube that was swept off an abattoir floor and add that into our stews because we're smarter, right? Because <laughs> some big company told us on the television, like somebody, the Unilever told us, somebody told us to do it. So you've talked about the way that you use seaweed in food and then you also mentioned making the handles for cutlery and another thing that Irish people have been doing for a long time is taking seaweed baths. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the type of seaweed that that you use for that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, fucus serrated, serratus, uh, or serrated rack, sorak, is one of the ones that grows between the high water mark and the low water marks. One of the ones you step over on the way to the, the shoreline at low tide. And it's a brown seaweed. And this is the one that contains all the oils and gels that are just fantastic for um, your skin. So what happens is uh, we'd harvest that and we'd dry it naturally outside and then it gets put into little net bags which are um, made from beach cuttings. So they're actually made from um, beach chippings, so cellulose for beach chippings. So they're a biodegradable net bag, if you like. So that net bag then, you pop that in your bathtub, you pour in boiling water first to draw out the oils and gels, and then you fill the the tub the way you want, and then you get, and then you use the net bag as a loofah. And when you're done, you can use it a couple of times, use it two or three times. Um, and when you're finished, you just chuck that out into the garden, onto your favorite tree or onto a plant, and it becomes amazing um, plant feed. Um, slash fertilizer, so uh, it it biodegrades in, into the in into your garden. So we'd supply a, a bunch of uh, we'd sell them on our, our own website. We'd supply a bunch of um, a few hotels with these net bags, with the seaweed bath bags, if you like. Uh, well, and I think it's really it's really those seaweed baths are something that you really have to experience for yourself because I remember when we put our hands into the water. Um, when we were at your house, it really, it, it creates almost like a, almost like a gel consistency. And it, it does it's un, actually It's unbelievable feel, what comes out of such a, yeah, as, it feels a, great a, a flimsy skin. looking plant. Um, and I can't, I can't understand why it's not been used more, but it, I, I certainly have noticed, um, say seven, eight years ago, we'd say to a hotel, listen guys, why don't you try and include this in your offering? And we'd, they'd kind of look at us funny. Um, and then 
now now they're screaming for the so this people are paying more attention to this stuff as we're going on there I guess there's in general and it's the same with seaweed as a food or foraged foods in general people are are um, they're more suspect now of the big corporates you know we're, we're not prepared where we would have been 15, 20 years ago people didn't think about what you got in the in the duty free in the airport what was written on the back um, or, or you know shampoo in the hotel but now people are paying more attention because they 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 realise that maybe um we weren't being told the whole truth all the way along, and we were being you know that th- there was a lot of kind of muck been sent our way. Along the coast of Ireland, there's been a corporate consolidation of seaweed harvesting versus people harvesting it individually. Can you talk about some of those developments and what the response has been, and whether you know there can be maybe too much foraging of of this natural resource from the sea? Absolutely. That's a, it's a good, a very important topic. Um, so there was a large Canadian company moved in. The word is that they thought they might be getting harvesting rights, but we're very lucky in Ireland because there's a, a, a land act that went back to the 1880s, whereby if you owned a cottage, um, within, it was a mile of the shore, uh, that you had harvesting rights to seaweed um, at the edge of that shore. Even if your land didn't go all the way to the shore, it made no difference. So you had you had harvesting rights, rights attached to the folio of the property. So if you like, from Donegal, in the, in the top, top northwest of Ireland, all the way to Cork, so all the way down the west, west coast, and the southern coast, um, every bit of seaweed there is linked to some cottage. Now, a lot of those cottages might be in ruins. The roof might be gone. You'd have awful trouble trying to find, figure out who owned it or where the person who owns it lives now or whatever. Um, but there's still rights attached to those old cottages. It, it was a brilliant outcome because this has tied up the seaweed rights so no government body, no corporation, no company can um, do anything uh, too quickly to purchase the rights. Because if you started now trying to find out who owns all those um, cottages, it would take you hundreds of years to try and figure it out, you know. Um, not a mind to, to try and buy the portfolios or the, the freehold on the land. So now... Uh, there is no uh, large harvesting licenses that are there for the taking or for the, for the issuing because this this has blocked up the whole runway, if you like. It's confused matters um, almost beyond redemption, which is no harm because uh, there's a huge interest now and there's lots and lots of money ready to jump in. Um, there's two other factors in in the whole seaweed game, and um, obviously you can over harvest, so so it's very very important that um, harvesting is monitored. Say where we harvest now, and we'd only harvest a tiny amount, but we'd um, you estimate the biomass, and you're depending on the species, you're allowed to take a certain percentage of that biomass, and that's considered sustainable. It's really important that that's uh, 
that that's enforced because you could do untold damage. See, seaweed's really, really important. Um, it fixes carbon, it releases oxygen, but it's a hugely uh, important in the ecosystem for um, breeding, for laying eggs, for grazing um, of all sorts of sea creatures. So if you were to over-harvest, you really um, mess up the balance. The the um, famous case was in the, during World War One. they over-harvested the kelp um, off Southern California, a place called Gunpowder Bay off San Diego. The Hercules Gunpowder Company were involved. It was for the war effort. It was because they collected kelp and they extracted potash from kelp, which was used in um, in munitions manufacture, so there was a there was a the world's biggest potash mine was in Germany, so during World War One they couldn't buy potash from Germany, so they had to gather it themselves, and so they went back to traditional kelp harvesting this time with um, hu- three huge ships, and they they basically created a desert of Gunpowder Bay in San Diego, but uh, you can do untold damage really really quickly. Ireland had its first um, uh, uh, mechanical harvesting ship was granted a license um, about six years back, but the license was challenged because they had, they had, it was granted without an environmental impact study um, having taken place. So the guy, even though the ship is still there, it's only an hour and a half away from where I'm sitting, and um, thankfully he's never been allowed um, to mechanically harvest the kelp from the ocean floor because, again, there's so many different creatures depending on that, those kelp forests, that if you go harvesting, um, if you do it wrong, you could uh, you could create a desert. Um, they've been in off Southern California there, off San Diego, but in it's over 100 years and they still haven't recovered. It's still essentially a desert after the two and a half years that the Hercules Gunpowder Company um, harvested that kelp back then. So um, we have to be very, very careful of, uh, of any mechanical harvesting. So I would, I would stick to um, hand harvesting only and I'd be all for regulation um, to, to, to keep it sustainable because it's too important to mess up. Um, but there's no doubt that, uh, that the... The increased demand for seaweed is 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 it's growing exponentially. Like, um, back even when if we go back six seven years, even the number of chefs I might get one or two calls a year from chefs, but now it's it's sort of like you know you spend a lot of time saying no thanks we're busy or putting them on to somebody else because thankfully it's a uh, they they all want in on it you know. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work, and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. 
As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect, while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th. And again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. little change the subject here, but is there anything uh, great or memorable that you've, that you've been able to eat recently? Well, that's a change of subject. <laughs> let me think. Well, well me we t- talk, so. Well, you, well you know, wait, 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 wait. Let me answer that honestly. Okay. We had scallops from, um, oh, we had scallops. Now they came out of the freezer, but they're from just out of Dingle. They're from like three, four hours out of Dingle. Um, and we've had them since before, just before Christmas, and we had them two nights ago. But because we tested positive for um, Omnicon the, the um, last Thursday, our taste buds were gone. So it's completely wasted. Oh, no. We got oh, no. the texture, but we didn't get what we paid for. <laughs> so that is totally our fault. We should have kept them. We should have eaten you know, sausages until we got them. Um, until we are uh, eating just hot, you know, hot dogs until we got our taste buds back. But hopefully we're out of um, isolation tomorrow. I like that you answered that question um, with a type of local seafood because, you know, we've traveled around Ireland a lot and we've experienced all different kinds of food while we've been there. But we've also found in the United States, when you ask people about what they think um, Irish food is, they, you know, usually go to potatoes or they say they don't know, but people actually seem to forget that Ireland is an island nation. And with that comes um, bountiful seafood. Um, so I, I guess I'm just wondering if somebody were to ask you, you know, what is Irish food? How would you answer that question? Well, if well, I'd say Thankfully, we look at the likes of um, Myrtle and Dorina Allen, who took our Irish food forward because we would have had a shocking reputation um, and well-earned about 30 years ago. Um, I guess we'd, we, a young nation, we had other things on our mind, but um, uh, certainly now we'd have more respect for what's around us. Um, and the, the, thankfully, the seas are, are still pretty bountiful. We'd, uh, we we still get to go out and catch catch our own fish. We still have some in the freezer. We might get two or three lobsters a year. We might get, we'd get 
shot of mackerel, um, and it's we we collect some shellfish, um, right through the winter we can collect mussels down the road here, but yeah, the, the relationship with seafood was would have been a funny thing as well because most of Ireland would have been Catholic and strict Catholic at that for hundreds of years, and it was illegal to eat meat during Lent. Um, so that's 40 days and 40 nights. And there was also, you couldn't eat meat on a Friday. So, and this was really strictly adhered to. So fish was eaten on a Friday, but it was, it was almost a penance. So it wasn't, fish wasn't eaten the way it would be um, enjoyed by Italians or Spanish or the Basques or something. It was, it was eaten here because, because you couldn't, you weren't allowed to eat meat. So, that's all changed now, thankfully, but that was, um, I mean, you couldn't get worse PR here and giving you this <laughs> because you're not allowed to have what you want. Um, but, and, and then all, you know, most Irish people would ever dream of is a big overcooked steak. But I think that's all changed now. How's your summer season looking in terms of tours and travel coming up? It's insane, actually, Max. Um, it's funny. There's there's a couple of crowds, so hopefully it it looks like we're we're heading the right direction with this thing. But the 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 books are very healthy. I see a huge pent up demand for travel. Well, that's great. Glad to hear it. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been really awesome to uh, learn more about seaweed, and um, we're just so excited for it. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. Um, and hopefully we get to see you guys soon over this side. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Definitely. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. <laughs>